e-commerce is not an old industry, but the technology behind e-commerce is surprisingly often out of date. Our guest today is CTO of industry disruptor, Emma Sleep. He's built the most modern e-commerce architecture you can find in Europe. And he's here to tell you what it takes. Going for Composable is the last replatforming you're going to do. As you'll hear, there's more to it than just buying better tech. It takes challenging commerce models, mindsets, and architectural assumptions. You're listening to People Changing Enterprises. I'm your host, Jasmine Goodman. Please enjoy this episode with Andreas Westendorf. You brought the concept of Composable to Emma Sleep. Tell us about how you made the business case for that. Yeah, so first of all, the entire idea of Composable Commerce is actually not really a technical decision to make. It's actually one where you need to analyze and really deeply understand where your organization and your business is and what also the plans, the ambitions of the future are and where you are, you where you want to go. So I indeed brought the idea to, of Composable Commerce to Emma, but when I started at Emma two years and a couple of months back, actually that was not necessarily on my agenda. My agenda was more like understand where the business is at, where the technology platform is at and see what are the levers, what are the necessities and what's the ambition level, what we are striving for, what is necessary to be done for that. What I realized quite quickly is that this company is on a really exceptional trajectory and growth plan or growth path, essentially doubling its business every one or two years. That this requires for substantial change and actually a step change. So incremental improvement would not do anymore. The technology platform behind it back then was a monolithic one, one that is very common and open source one. It was Magento, a very customized very version of Magento. And over the years, highly extended to the needs of the business. But what became clear is that with the intensive scaling of this company and the business, the platform and the teams that are running the platform, developing the platform, did not scale as well. And actually, this is a, you can say, beautiful example of Law of Conway, where you actually have strong interdependencies between the architectural design of systems and the organizations producing those. It did not scale. And when I say it did not scale, it doesn't necessarily mean it did not scale technically. We could have spun up uh, more virtual servers and that would have worked. But for the ambition level that we're looking at and going for, coming from already triple digit million euros of revenue and then heading for the billion euro, this would organizationally not anymore scale. That is becoming a problem and it's something that a lot also of other CTOs in e-commerce but also in other industries experiences that their teams are becoming the bottleneck of business development in the company. And in order to avoid that, you need to take that leap. You need to really rethink the entire architecture, the technical and the organizational because they are so much influencing each other. And for us, that means going to a setup where we can do more things independently and design teams and technology in a way that it is less dependent on other parts of the organization or the technology landscape. And today there's a beautiful model for this. There's uh, empowered product teams that you can set up in the most autonomous way. And those empowered product teams then work with 
technology that can be easily connected and composed. And there we are with the composable approach. So essentially, it was not predetermined, but it was a very good point in time for Emma to go for this because it just perfectly fits our use case of this high, uh, this high growth and scaling environment we're in. And tell us about some unexpected challenges that you met along the way. I know you said that composable or decoupled technology has existed for a long time, but commercial models are preventing it. Indeed, e-commerce was one of the areas in the internet where uh, you could earn good money first. And that's why also a lot of the platforms that are still around and dominated the space for very long have this architectural design characteristics of the late 90s and the early 2000s. And it is now that these not even new characteristics of modern software development are being used in e-commerce. That is the technical part of it. So we are now doing uh, microservices. We're doing API first. Everything runs in the cloud. So this uh, everything's headless. So this Mach principle in the space, that's not technically, in the, this, these are not new things, but they are new to e-commerce. This is the technical side of things. The other side of it is, a lot of those vendors that are in the space and that have been providing the systems that a lot of companies are running on, especially more in the enterprise ERP area, but also this, you can also uh, find this in, in the area of CRM or supply chain management, but a lot of these vendors still also follow commercial models that are, that feel like, yeah, they're stuck in the 1990s. It's all about trying to, and that follows this basic idea of IT is something that the business ideally doesn't, even doesn't see. It's not value creating, but it's something that needs to be silent, that needs to be cheap and outsourced. And that's an old idea because by now everybody, I think, in the industry has understood that IT is not only the stuff that your business runs on, but it's actually creating new business. It's a value driver by now. And this is also when I believe, I don't know, that was probably like eight or 10 years ago, the nomenclature and the, the wording changed and IT became tech and there's value creation and people started talking about tech. And now, what unfortunately, in this very specific domain of enterprise software didn't change so much is how they would approach customers with their solutions. They always try to sell you something that is very integrated which is another word for monolithic. These days, monolithic tends to be a bad word, but it's actually not. Monolithic designs are also good for a lot of things. So if you are a startup and you start off with microservices architecture, then you're doing something wrong because you're, you're going to die in complexity before you earn your first dollar. So there's, there's good areas of application for all designs, but for companies of a certain complexity, integ highly integrated systems that follow monolithic approaches are a problem and these commercial models are also following this idea of trying to outsource the problem to the vendor and uh, they come with a lot of consulting they come with let's say long-lasting project timelines on uh, gun charts that look more like annual calendars more than a project timeline actually and if you just follow this principle they will always say it's best practice that's best practice is how everybody does it in the in, in the industry and it's actually not. It's not anymore. You can have business value after weeks and months, but 
let's say the vendor side of it is different. You earn way more money with a three-year project. Could you please tell us how you challenged Microsoft? I heard there's a really cool story behind that. So, yeah, to every rule, there's an exception. And in our composable commerce architecture, beyond the open source parts that we build ourselves, the software as a service solutions that we're using, there's one part that we call the finance and operations core, which is based on Microsoft finance and supply chain management. And this is, um, so in most of our companies, you would call this the ERP, but we don't want to call it uh, this way because we have many sources of truths in the different business domains that we run in our business. Now, uh, the story with Microsoft is pr pretty interesting because working with a company with as Microsoft, or and that's very much the same with uh, all the other ERP vendors, means that you need to work with a network of partners. And that's, as I said earlier, brings the challenge of dealing with rather old commercial approaches of yeah, making a big project out of it and trying to outsource the problem to the partner of the vendor. And for us, this didn't really work. So we had built already a lot of expertise within our own teams. We had an internal Microsoft Dynamics team already set up. Fortunately, we convinced Microsoft to yeah, understand us as a customer and our case as a very important case to unlock a different characteristic of company, a company that really wants to take ownership and wants to take care of their core processes and also wants to build the capabilities and the know-how internally. And that actually resulted then in a very strong partnership that we're running with them directly with Microsoft, also trying to prove a point to the rest of the industry to a certain extent that you can run these things in a more agile, faster, and, and cheaper manner. And to be honest, like in a couple of months, after five months, we had already launched our first country on the new platform, where, let's say, in the original project plan that we were presented by a partner, we would merely have a sandbox environment without data. But that says something. I feel the entire industry is going for such new approaches that are more fit to the customers, that are faster and produce better results. But there's some resistance to be overcome from business models and commercial models that are actually rooted in like 1980s, 1990s sales behavior. It's not a technical requirement. There's not at all. The systems are ready for that. It's now the commercial collaboration that we need to change. Oh, absolutely. And change is a great word for us to hinge on or dive, dive a little deeper into. You're a huge advocate for changing the way e-commerce technology is done. At Emma Sleep, you have a blog series about how to do e-commerce like it's 2021 or 2023 in that regard. Mm -hmm. By now. By now, exactly. What makes you personally so passionate about this shift and what does the world really need to understand? The motivation behind it basically is one that stems somehow also from my personal history. So I'm by education, by, by background, I'm a software engineer and I've worked, let's say, long enough where from today's perspective, I would say I don't want to replicate this anymore, like feature team setups and with huge amounts of technology that made work life not really pleasant and not even effective. There's huge potential now to yeah, create better work life, better business for everybody. If I am working for an e-commerce company and our own web store is not working so that I yeah, that 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 I 
I'm delighted using it, then there's a problem. Then I have kind of a the the feeling of I'm not putting my attention where it should be. And that's happening. We're we're have reinvented the entire landscape of our systems and uh, that run our business processes at Emma. And we turned every stone. And that's something that we're kind of also proud of because this is probably the most modern e-commerce architecture you can find, at least in Europe. And yeah, that's really encouraging and, uh, and cool to work on. Looking forward, this also drives innovation. This also drives, now we're, we're doing, or we needed to spend a good amount of time to get the basics and run the business on a better platform. But looking forward, even there's so much innovation that you can apply and you can apply faster and in that kind of a setup that we now have with teams moving in parallel where you can easily say like let's experiment with that i don't know chat gpt technology and try integrating that to a certain extent for some use case without putting this thing now this feature request on the roadmap that will sit for six months and you know these old painful processes that we had in the past and that's a cool thing i like this fast experimentation trial uh, trial and find out uh, learn with smart experiments kind of working yeah and it, it really is a an enablement tool for your people and if you enable your people to do more and do the exciting stuff that is such a rewarding environment to work in the prerequisite for that is going to a moving to a composable stack, tech stack. And I think a lot of brands out there are catching on to the idea, but at the same time are concerned because they think it's really complicated. What was your experience like and how important do you think it is to move in that direction? I once read a claim that I found really interesting, maybe a bit short, maybe a bit too simplified, but going for composable is the last replatforming you're going to do. Why is that? It is an interesting claim, and it's a bit provocative. The thing about it is if you are doing replatforming to a composable architecture, then you're essentially re-architecting your entire landscape, and you're building it in a way that you easily can attach and detach stuff, and making the effort of replatforming not a big thing that you need to do every couple of years, but actually something that you do on a daily basis. So I don't know. And for us, that means also to be more flexible. We don't, we are doing business in more than 30 countries in, in the world. And if you're going for composable with open source and a good choice of vendors and uh, of platforms, then you have also the opportunity to uh, have multiple solutions for, for the same use case in different geographies, for example, or also decide against a solution after some time and replace it with something that works better for you. But you don't need to redo the whole thing again. That's the difference. The amount of or the amount of work to change this in a composable is way less than in a highly integrated architecture. That makes perfect sense. Any advice for how to get started? Because that's usually the hardest part, right? Once you're where you guys are now, it really makes your life easier. But how to get there? Well, prepare yourself. It's going to be a journey that never ends. Software is never finished. So don't expect it to and don't promise deadlines of when uh, the work is done because it's never going to be done. The work is done when you close the doors of your shop, then the work is done. So it's a continuous effort. What you can uh, say is if you are planning this 
you need to be ambitious and but also find this uh, and ambitious and bold but still find small increments to get a feeling on progress and a work in progress so you cannot do everything at once so you need uh, different stages you need as a, a staged approach of how to get there you need to also define the areas where you can work in parallel on an e-commerce uh, d2c that's fortunately not too complex so you need to do some thinking here on the architecture of your business not only the architecture of technology but if you have done that and we've done that or re-engineered our business so for us not too long ago being a startup there was no process documentation of our business right so startups don't do this again if they do they they were doing something wrong because they startups are in survival mode but if you're becoming a scale-up like we are we need this kind of understanding of how your process should run be run like and uh, what the difference to the status quo is and we did this with free in within three months don't also think that engineers can only do coding and product managers can only do discovery people should be intrinsically interested in the thing that they're building so it's a very good exercise for us it was super important and super powerful to have our most senior engineers working in the discovery phase of these processes, how the business is run. Because then for the first time, they understand why they're coding these business rules and why this is happening. And yeah, there are people that would say, I'm not here for business analysis. I'm here for writing code. But actually, you're not. <laughs> actually, you're, to, you're here to improve the business and you are improving the business significantly. So go in with all the, uh, and the most capable people that you have in the company. Don't be shy also to get external experts integrated into the team but don't overdo this you cannot outsource this this is something that is at the core of your business so you need to really also have that knowledge in inside of your company don't plan, uh, plan for a five-year project if you're trying to if you within a five-year time frame things change too much so plan for two years two years is a good time horizon if two years becomes two and a half fair enough good enough but uh, you need to somehow have at the end of two years the most critical uh, work, like the 90% of the work should have been done. Don't try to anticipate everything on the way. The amount of work you put in trying to know what's happening in a year, it's not worth it. You need to work with a time horizon of, I don't know, six months, maybe nine months. That's what you're looking at, not two years, not three, not longer for sure. Absolutely great. The time of the 10-year plan is really over. Thanks for listening to People Changing Enterprises. This show is brought to you by ContentStack, the leading composable digital experience platform for enterprises. Got a question or suggestion? Email us at podcast at contentstack.com. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week with a new episode helping you make your mark.